Chapter Eighteen of the Jewel by Anton Chekhov, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The deacon got up, dressed, took his thick gnarled stick, and slipped quietly out of the house. It was dark, and for the first minute, when he went into the street, he could not even see his white stick. There was not a single star in the sky, and it looked as though there would be rain again. There was a smell of wet sand and sea. It's to be hoped that the mountaineers won't attack us, thought the deacon, hearing the tap of the stick on the pavement, and noticing how loud and lonely the tap sounded in the stillness of the night. When he got out of town, he began to see both the road and his stick. Here and there in the black sky there were dark, cloudy patches, and soon a star peeped out and timidly blinked its one eye. The deacon walked along the high rocky coast and did not see the sea. It was slumbering below, and its unseen waves broke languidly and heavily on the shore, as though sighing, Oof! And how slowly! One wave broke, the deacon had time to count eight steps. Then another broke, and six steps, later a third. As before, nothing could be seen, and in the darkness one could hear the languid, drowsy drone of the sea. One could hear the infinitely far away, inconceivable time when God moved above chaos. The deacon felt uncanny. He hoped God would not punish him for keeping company with infidels, and even going to look at their jewels. The jewel would be nonsensical, bloodless, absurd. But however that might be, it was a heathen spectacle, and it was altogether unseemly for an ecclesiastical person to be present at it. He stopped and wondered, should he go back? But an intense, restless curiosity triumphed over his doubts, and he went on. Though they are infidels, they are good people and will be saved, he assured himself. They are sure to be saved, he said aloud, lighting a cigarette. By what standard must one measure men's qualities to judge rightly of them? The deacon remembered his enemy, the inspector of the clerical school, who believed in God, lived in chastity, and did not fight duels. But he used to feed the deacon on bread with sand in it, and on one occasion almost pulled off the deacon's ear. If human life was so artlessly constructed that everyone respected this cruel and dishonest inspector who stole the government flower, and his health and salvation were prayed for in the schools, was it just to shun such men as von Korn and Laevsky simply because they were unbelievers? The deacon was weighing this question, but he recalled how absurd Samolenko had looked yesterday, and that broke the thread of his ideas. What fun they would have next day! The deacon imagined 
how he would sit under a bush and look on, and when von Koren began boasting next day at dinner, he, the deacon, would begin laughing and telling him all the details of the duel. "'How do you know all about it?' the zoologist would ask. "'Well, there you are. I stayed at home, but I know all about it.' "'It would be nice to write a comic description of the duel. "'His father-in-law would read it and laugh. "'A good story, told or written, was more than meat and drink to his father-in-law.' "'The valley of the Yellow River opened before him. "'The stream was broader and fiercer for the rain, "'and instead of murmuring as before, it was raging. "'It began to get light.' the grey, dingy morning, and the clouds racing toward the west to overtake the storm-clouds, the mountains girt with mist, and the wet trees, all struck the deacon as ugly and sinister. He washed at the brook, repeated his morning prayer, and felt a longing for tea and hot rolls with sour cream, which were served every morning at his father-in-law's. He remembered his wife, and the days past recall, which she played on the piano. What sort of woman was she? His wife had been introduced, betrothed, and married to him all in one week. He had lived with her less than a month when he was ordered here, so that he had not had time to find out what she was like. All the same, he rather missed her. I must write her a nice letter, he thought. The flag on the Duhan hung limp, soaked by the rain, and the Duhan itself, with its wet roof, seemed darker and lower than it had been before. Near the door was standing a cart. Kerbalai, with two mountaineers and a young Tartar woman in trousers, no doubt Kerbalai's wife or daughter, were bringing sacks of something out of the Duhan, and putting them on May's straw in the cart. Near the cart stood a pair of asses hanging their heads. When they had put in all the sacks, the mountaineers and the Tartar woman began covering them over with straw, while Kerbalay began hurriedly harnessing the asses. Smuggling, perhaps, thought the deacon. Here was the fallen tree with the dried pine needles. Here was the blackened patch from the fire. He remembered the picnic and all its incidents. The fire, the singing of the mountaineers, his sweet dreams of becoming a bishop, and of the church procession. The black river had grown blacker and broader with the rain. The deacon walked cautiously over the narrow bridge, which by now was reached by the topmost crests of the dirty water and went up through the little copse to the drying shed. A splendid head, he thought, stretching himself on the straw and thinking of von Koren. A fine head. God grant him health. Only there is cruelty in him. Why did he hate Levski, and Levski hate him? Why were they going to fight a duel? If from their childhood they had known poverty, as the deacon had, if they had been brought up among ignorant, hard-hearted, grasping, 
coarse and ill-mannered people who grudged you a crust of bread, who spat on the floor and hiccoughed at dinner and at prayers. If they had not been spoilt from childhood by the pleasant surroundings and the select circle of friends they lived in, how they would have rushed at each other, how readily they would have overlooked each other's shortcomings and would have prized each other's strong points. Why, how few even outwardly decent people there were in the world. It was true that Laevsky was flighty, dissipated, queer, but he did not steal, did not spit loudly on the floor. He did not abuse his wife and say, You will eat this till you burst, but you don't want to work. He would not beat a child with reins, or give his servants stinking meat to eat. Surely this was reason enough to be indulgent to him? Besides, he was the chief sufferer from his failings, like a sick man from his sores. Instead of being led by boredom and some sort of misunderstanding to look for degeneracy, extinction, heredity, and other such incomprehensible things in each other, would they not do better to stoop a little lower and turn their hatred and anger where whole streets resounded with moanings from coarse ignorance, greed, scolding, impurity, swearing, the shrieks of women? The sound of a carriage interrupted the deacon's thoughts. He glanced out of the door and saw a carriage and in it three persons, Laevsky, Sheshkovsky, and the superintendent of the post-office. "'Stop!' said Sheshkovsky. All three got out of the carriage and looked at one another. "'They're not here yet,' said Sheshkovsky, shaking the mud off. "'Well, till the show begins, let us go and find a suitable spot. There's not room to turn round here.' They went further up the river, and soon vanished from sight. The Tartar driver sat in the carriage, with his head resting on his shoulder, and fell asleep. After waiting ten minutes, the deacon came out of the drying shed, and taking off his black hat, that he might not be noticed, he began threading his way among the bushes and strips of maize along the bank, crouching and looking about him. The grass and maize were wet, and the big drops fell on his head from the trees and bushes. Disgraceful, he muttered, picking up his wet and muddy skirt. Had I realized it, I would not have come. Soon he heard voices and caught sight of them. Levsky was walking rapidly to and fro in the small glade, with bowed back and hands thrust in his sleeves. His seconds were standing at the water's edge, rolling cigarettes. Strange, thought the deacon, not recognizing Laevsky's walk. He looks like an old man. How rude it is of them, said the superintendent of the post office, looking at his watch. It may be learned manners to be late, but to my thinking it's hoggish. Sheshkovsky, a stout man with a black beard listened and said, They're coming. End of chapter 18